Well, last week we looked at just one verse, John 3.16. I hope that sermon did not ruin your walk with the Lord. Today, we're going to look at many questions. One of them would be this. What is your attitude towards the light? Some people prefer, oh, darker days. Some of you can't even get out of bed without some light in the room. Has anyone here ever been scared of the dark? I know I have. Physical darkness is a scary thing. I know more than, well, many times I've left the light on for Courtney. Daddy, can you leave the light on? Not now, but when she was younger. But physical darkness can be a scary thing, not only just for kids, but also for adults. There's a book that speaks about the civil rights movement in the 1960s. Story about a black couple, Mr. and Mrs. Cole. After leaving church one night, they were surrounded by Klansmen who ordered them to turn off their headlights. Because what we'll see today is people love the darkness. I'll read the story to you. A few hundred yards from the church, the Coles in their car and another black couple in their truck were forced to the side by a pickup truck. A group of Klansmen then approached the vehicles and ordered the drivers to turn their headlights off. The Coles and the other couple were seized and interrogated. Where are the guns? They were asked, exposing the Klansmen's unfounded fear that local blacks were storing up ammunition. The Klansmen then proceeded to beat Mr. Cole, repeatedly striking blows to his head and back with an iron, an iron tire jack and kicking his head and hip until he lay motionless in the dirt parking lot. Mrs. Cole pleaded with the Klansmen to stop their torture, hoping against hope that she could reason with the mob. He can't say nothing. He's unconscious, she said. Her memory of what happened that night is worth documenting at length. She says, I began to pray. I was praying very hard. I was just praying, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Don't let them kill my husband. And then I heard a voice sound like a woman scream down the road, just a few, just a little piece below me. And the man, then a man walking up with a club. And I continued saying, Lord, have mercy. And he drew back to hit me. And I asked this man that was standing by him, would he allow me to pray? The one on the right says, if you think it will do you any good, you had better pray. The one on the left says, it's too late to pray. But I said, let me pray. I stretched out my hands. Then I started praying to God that he would spare my husband, that God would spare his life. I kept praying and praying. And then I remember the hymn. It just fell right into my heart. I said, Father, I stretch my hand to to thee. No other help I know. If thou with... If thou withdraw thy help, from where shall I go? That's what I prayed. And when I said that, the man who was beating my husband just stopped. Someone said, leave him him living. And I went there and tried to lift my husband up once, then again, and I couldn't do it. And I tried a third time, and he just fell back to his knees. Finally, he stood up, and I drug him to where the car was, and I put him in the car. And about that time, the crowd of Klansmen just disappeared. I don't know anything else to do but call on God. And God just got in the midst. The Lord saved Mr. Cole from those terrible beatings. But the fact is that occurred at night. 
because that's when evil lurks. What we're going to see today is, strangely enough, it's a strange name for a sermon, but people love the darkness. Don't kid yourselves somehow that you think you don't really like it dark. Physically, you don't. But spiritually, we're going to find out. You not only just put up with it, you love it, and you live there as an unbeliever. So they're answering a few questions in this text today. The one would be this. What is the primary reason God sent his son into the world? There's many reasons. What's the primary? Number two, what is a requirement for a person to escape condemnation? And number three, what is the reason why people do not come to Christ? All three of these are answered in this text along with other questions, but we'll just look at those three in the text. Verse 17, this is the word of God. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, just for you trivia nerds out there, question. Who is the first apostle? Who is the first apostle? Well, before you call out the wrong answer, R.C. Sproul says it this way, and I think he's right. The first and greatest apostle in the New Testament, indeed, the supreme apostle in the New Testament, was Jesus himself. And you go, wait a second, he's never called an apostle. Well, hold on. The Greek word apostello, it means to send, sent ones. And that very verse 17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, you'll see that Jesus was actually the first sent one. And then later he would have his 12 apostles and they would be sent. In John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And catch this, we are also sent ones. Now we are not all apostles, to be clear. But we are sent ones, yes, to go and make disciples. We are still sent. That's free. Continuing on, verse 17, Christ did not, or rather God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Now, condemn is this Greek word, krino. It means to judge, but it really has two primary meanings. One would be to condemn, and that's the way it's used here in this verse. Uh, secondly, you could use it in a sense to judge in a more neutral sense. Bible's clear that we will all one day be judged, not condemned if you are in Christ, but you will be judged. Um, and I would tell you this, don't blame this on the Greek at this point. There's a lot of things you can blame them for, at least the language, but not this one. Because in English, we do the same thing, do we not? We do have a chili cook-off today. You're hoping your chili will not be condemned. <laughs> it will be judged but not condemned. So we use that as well. Doesn't Christ condemn though? I mean, doesn't he? Well, yeah, John 9, 39, Jesus will say, for judgment I came into the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. That sounds condemning to me. And also Matthew 10, 34, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That sounds like condemning to me. Well, I would put it this way. Judging, and in this case condemning, is the secondary reason why Jesus came in his first coming. But primarily in his first coming, saving was the reason. You see, it's important to note the world was 
and is already condemned. God the Father did not send his son into the world to save innocent people from being condemned. No, we're gonna see very clearly in this text, we are condemned at birth. You see, God could have destroyed us the very moment that Adam and Eve first took a bite of the, tr- of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The very first bite, that would have been it. And you go, yeah, but I'd be okay. I don't think you understand genetics very well. We're all tied into Adam and Eve. If they die, we all die. We never existed. You know, God could have easily said, shook his head as they're eating and go, okay, angels, y'all come on down. You can take it from here. Let's eradicate this mankind stuff. But he doesn't. He doesn't. We'll continue on. It says, but in order that the world might be saved through him to save. That's why Jesus came. Yet only a member of the Trinity of the Godhead could make atonement for God and to propitiate God's wrath. It had to be God. And sure enough, you have God the Son who not only was sent, but it's important to note, he also volunteered as well. It was both and. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. There it is because he has not believed in the name of the Son, of the only Son of God. Believe in him. We made a big deal about that last week. It's not just mental assent. You're actually moving towards putting your trust in something, into something. That's what we have. Uh, Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That should make you smile today. I mean, think about that. Whatever sin you have committed or whatever sin you will one day commit, you haven't thought about, you're not condemned for. Christ took that upon the cross. Well, okay, I see what you mean, Jeff, but Matthew 5, 48, Jesus will say, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Anybody achieve that today by yourself? Hmm, you're as bad as me. But what you find out is that Christ is making it clear to them, you can't be perfect because you're a sinner. And so even your best deeds are like filthy rags. So when Satan calls you a failure and a a sinner, it's gonna sound strange. And this is not typically the advice that perhaps others would give. I would say, believe him. Believe him, you are You have sinned, you have sinned, and you continue to sin. You are a failure. And yet, catch this, you are also in Christ. And because you were in Christ, you're a saint, you're a holy one. When God looks at you, he puts on the blood-stained glasses of his son and looks at you. So he can declare you as righteous because of his son is righteous. And so I think there's important to do, really, we call it soul talk, perhaps, is maybe that's a, not the best term for it. But Psalm 42, 11, David will speak to himself. He's not crazy. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed in me? Hope in God, for I will yet praise in my Savior and my God. You see, David's problem is the same problem that we have. We go through trials and tribulations and we go, I'm such a failure. I'm such a mess up. I, strangely enough, I'm telling you, don't run from that. 
but run towards the person that declares that, no, you're actually not a failure because you're in me. And that's the only reason why you're not a failure, because you're in Christ, and he's perfect. But whoever, it says in verse 18, does not believe is condemned already. This will be clear in a few Sundays. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, present tense. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. And you might say, well, the wrath of God remains on him because he's rejected Jesus. No, the wrath of God remains on him is because he's human, because he's born a sinner, because he's wicked, because we have something called original sin. And when Adam fell in the garden, we all fell with him. Now be careful thinking that I'm gonna pick a bone when I deal with Adam in heaven about this. That line is gonna be really short because fact is all you have to do is look in the mirror and you would see that you would do the same thing. Ephesians 2, 3, it says, we were by nature children of wrath. So we're not only sinners by nature, we're also sinners by choice every day. And it goes back to the garden. Can I tell you that? Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you, when God says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of eat, good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall, in the Hebrew, mutamut, mutamut, you will die, die. And once again, Adam and Eve go, what does that mean? I don't think that's a good term. And they find out very quickly what it means. So strangely enough, Adam's condemnation is the same as yours. He was your representative in the garden. And once again, we would do no better. And if that whole representation thing bothers you, don't let it. Because fact is, is that somebody else represented you before God the Father in heaven who took your sins upon himself. So when we say things like, Jesus was my substitute, that's true, but it has to be nuanced. What I mean by that is that if we're playing a football game and maybe you sprain your ankle and, and somebody else goes in for you, they can be your substitute. But could you ever be the substitute for Christ? No, you see, he wasn't just your substitute. So when he died on the cross, he didn't just give you his innocence. He gave you his, what? Righteousness. He's not just your substitute. He's so much more than that. Because even if you could die on the cross to somehow save you, you can't because it requires a perfect sacrifice. So what we're seeing in verse 18 is that Christ knows, and the reader knows too, that not everyone will be saved. As a matter of fact, the Bible is very clear. Many will be condemned. And yet the Holy Spirit insists that those people who are condemned are self-condemned. The reason why God's wrath is upon them, it's because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now stay with me. Earlier, I also said that he's condemned. He's really kind of double-condemned. Not only is he condemned because he's a, sin, he's a sinner deserving of the wrath of God, but now we're gonna find out he's also condemned for not receiving Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You see, strangely enough, the criteria for being condemned or not being condemned, it's never good works. And you know what's fascinating? The world always goes straight to that. Well, I know I'm not going to church these days. I need to be back involved and I need to be doing better things in order for God to accept me. no. That, that was never the case, ever. No, it all comes down to faith. It really comes down to who you know. 
or who you don't know. I like the way J.C. Ryle, 19th century commentator, writes. He says, nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost. By the death of his only begotten son, nothing is so, I like this phrase, nothing is so suicidal on the part of man as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul. What Raul is saying is, why would you kill yourself eternally by not coming to Christ? So he says, verse 19, this, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That is the basis for judging. Fully, completely here. Uh, and let me ask you this. What does it mean by the light? And you would say, well, of course, it's Christ. And I think it is. But remember, John is so interesting. He, by God's spirit only, he directs John to use words like world that has several meanings and darkness that has at least a couple of meanings and light has many meanings. So we're just gonna go ahead and review these today and hopefully you'll be able to kind of storm away for later. Uh, first off, Jesus Christ is the light of the world. John 8, 12, he says that, I'm the light of the world. Secondly, you can also use the word light to describe God's holiness and God's righteousness. 1 Timothy 6, 16, he dwells in unapproachable light. Which is who he is. Number three, the gospel can be termed the light. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is used uh, in his own darkness to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. You ever give the gospel to somebody and they seem to understand it and then the next day they're like, no, no, I don't believe any of that stuff. And you're like, What happened? The Bible says Satan takes it out of their heart. It's not that they believed and then somehow lost their salvation. No, they never had it to begin with. It's like a, a really good tasting drink. Ooh, I like the taste of that, but then pff, I'm done. That's what it would be like. Uh, number four, light can be used to describe believers. Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then finally, light can be used to describe spiritual illumination. Uh, this is for believers only, just to be clear, and it's only given by the Holy Spirit. Psalm 18, 28, the psalmist says, you, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. You ever run across passages of scripture and you're like, I've read the Bible, how have I missed that for so long? Because the Lord uh, in the Holy Spirit, he illuminates our mind to understand these things. So which one is it? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. I think it's primarily Christ, but certainly it could also refer to his holiness, his righteousness, the gospel that he is bringing into the world. But know what people do wrong. People love the darkness rather than the light. Or maybe you could put it this way. People set their love on darkness. Now, as I told you earlier, darkness can refer to ignorance, but primarily it refers to evil. We will put it this way. Whatever stands in opposition to the Lord and resists the light is darkness. Why? Well, it says, because their works were evil. This is why people love darkness. They have a moral problem. They love sin. They do not love the Lord's holiness. 
Second Peter 3, 3 says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following after their own sinful desires. You know who's a really great example of this? Uh, probably the most famous um, atheist of the 20th century, a guy by the name of Aldous Huxley. And what he in essence is saying is this, one of the reasons why I'm an atheist is I love to sin. And you're shocked. He doesn't say it exactly that way, but I'll give you the direct quote. He says this in his book called Ends and Means. He says, I had motives. I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. The philosopher who finds no meaning for this world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to. For myself, he says, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. <laughs> Huxley is saying this, a big part of the reason why I'm an atheist is because it gives me free license to do whatever I want to do. Now, I'm not saying that's the reason for all atheists, but certainly that is part of it because darkness hates light, doesn't want to think that there will ever be light to come to, gets it out of his head. Bible says the fool says in his heart there is no God. Certainly, he's being foolish because according to Romans 1, 18 and 20, he actually knows that there is a God, but he represses that truth. He shoves it down. So here's what it comes down to. Folks will not come to Christ due to their sins. And yet I'll say this, God is not lacking in his love toward the lost. Be careful with this. God loves the lost. Uh, to quote J.C. Ryle again, though, it's interesting what he does to describe unbelievers. He says, they love their own dark and corrupt ways more than the ways which God proposes to them. They therefore reap the fruit of their own ways and will have at last what they loved. They love darkness and they will be cast into outer darkness. They did not like the light and so they will be shut out from light eternally. In short, lost souls will be what they will to be and they will have what they loved. Hard, but true. So verse 20, for everyone who does wicked hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So the way it works is the unbeliever, um, not only do they love their sin, they hate the light. And I would say this too, they're not neutral towards Jesus Christ. They're not neutral at all. And then some of you go, wait a second. I, some unbelievers, though, seem to really love him or at least love for what he stands for. And I would say this, do they love the biblical Christ? That's the question at hand. And I think what you'll see is that every generation through their darkness seek to refashion God in their own image and in particular, Jesus Christ. As of late, um, they would run from anyone who demands holiness they seem to embrace perhaps a social justice warrior view of Jesus. They like that. But they, they're not understanding him. They're not understanding. Certainly, he had a love for the poor and widows and orphans, and we certainly should do as believers 
the same thing. But they don't like you shall be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect. They don't like standing opposed to sexual sin. They're like, no, no, no. They, they want to do what Jefferson did. Thomas Jefferson, if you've ever heard of his Jefferson Bible, he would cut out the divine aspects of Christ, the things he didn't like, the things that he disagreed with. He came up with his own Bible. And that's ultimately what unbelievers do. Now, be careful also. That's ultimately what you did before the Lord saved you. We were all unbelievers. We weren't born believers. Notice this. They not only, they hate the light, they do not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. It's interesting, this word in verse 20, when it says, who does wicked things. The word wicked, it's this Greek word phala, and it means worthless. It means worthless. Part of the reason they don't like to come to the light, it exposes their worthless pursuits. It's vanity. There's no, they have no hope in the future. Uh, oftentimes when I will witness to somebody, one of the last things I'll lead them, leave them with is, hey, do you have a Bible? Do you have a Bible at home? As long as you can get a Bible online. And I would encourage them to read the book of John or perhaps Luke. We could really choose any of the, uh, of the uh, gospels. But what am I trying to do? I'm trying to get them to see the light. And oftentimes they'll say, oh, I've, I've, read, I've read the Bible before. Oh, okay. Well, I encourage you again, once again, to get to know the author of life. And he's found in, in particular in these books. Uh, it tells his life. And they'll nod and good to meet you. But he and I both know that unless the Lord should prick his heart, he's not gonna read the Bible. Bible is a book of light, book of life. No, they don't wanna read the Bible. They're not interested. And by the way, as I will tell you this as a believer, if you will find yourself going, I don't really like to read it much these days either. You're in a dangerous position. I think it was my great-grandmother was saying that uh, the Bible will either keep you from sin or sin will keep you from the Bible. That's a broad brush. Doesn't mean you can't be reading the Bible today and commit some great heinous sin. Of course you can. But beware. If you're not running towards the light, you're running the other way. You see, ultimately, unbelievers, this is condemning for them. What did they fail to recognize? What did you fail to recognize before the Lord saved you? A couple of things. We could list several. Number one would be this. Romans 14, 12, each of us will give account of himself to God. See, that's always a great reason for being an atheist. Is in your mind, you're not going to give account to anybody. You're going to go to the ground, and that'll be it. But the problem is the Bible disagrees with you. And he says, no, one day you're actually going to give a thought, uh, rather uh, an account for not only the things you said and did, but even the thoughts of our, heart, of our hearts and minds. They also failed to note Hebrews 9, 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. You see, they failed to note that this life is all there is in regards to what will you do with Jesus Christ. Perhaps that's why certain denominations are, are drawn to a, a sort of a um, you know, purgatory that you can somehow work out your sins. Maybe you can have a second chance. There's gotta be a second chance. No, 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 no. After this life comes the judgment. 
Verse 21 ends with this, but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Did you catch that? Verse 20 and 21 are juxtaposing each other. Verse 20 is describing the unbeliever. He runs from the light. He doesn't want to be near the light. He's out of there. But verse 21 actually takes you to the believer. Whoever does what is true, he comes to the light. Uh, that phrase, uh, does what is true, it's really, it's an old uh, Semitic Jewish phrase, which means to act faithfully, to act honorably. They adhere ultimately to the truth of the gospel. And that's what has changed their heart. And so now they're following Christ. It's interesting because that word, whoever does, it's a participle. And now some of you that are not grammarians, you go, oh. Well, a participle is something that is over and over again. So you'd, perhaps you'd put it like this. But whoever does or what, what happens if you do something over and over again? You are practicing it. And that is the picture there. Whoever practices what is true comes to the light. Why is he practicing what is true? Because he's now got the Holy Spirit within him. He's abiding in him. Folks, these are characteristics of a believer. Not perfection. Be careful. But the bent of your life is towards Christ, towards holiness. Well, let me ask you this. Why isn't Nicodemus following Jesus? Remember, John 3 is about Nicodemus. And Nicodemus instead scratches his head and says, how can a man go back to his mother's womb? And how can these things be? He's not interested in following Christ at this time. Why? Why isn't Jesus following Jesus? Or rather, why isn't Nicodemus following Jesus? He does not want to come to the light. You see, light exposes sin and exposes the person for what he really is. Do you want to know the horrible darkness is that Nicodemus is hiding in at this time? And I'm going to take a, a strong guess because he was a Pharisee. We would say that he was following his own self-righteousness. And then some of you are at this point going, Whew, I thought you said it was what horrible darkness. Yeah, that's exactly what I said. Because self-righteousness could very well be the worst of sins. He's self-righteous. He doesn't need God. He knows some sort of historical oh, understanding of God that he would send a redeemer. The one sitting in front of him cannot be him. I'm gonna make my own way. Some of you perhaps are even thinking that today. I'll make my own way. But the Bible says there is no other way to the Father except through the Son. So verse 21, though, is telling us, why does a believer come to the light? Why does he come to the light? So he can showboat his good works in cockiness. No, no. No, no, no. It says, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. There's that preposition again, in God. Uh, and God's, what, basically it's what it's showing you is that by God's power or rather by your union with Christ in God, that's the only good you have in you. That's the only success you have ultimately. You see, verse 20 is describing that first, that first group. They won't come to the light for fear their works will be exposed. Group two, though, is found in verse 21, which are believers. They come to the light, so his, his works will be clearly seen. What does that mean, his works will be clearly seen? Well, that his, 
works are clearly seen because all glory is going to God. The only good in me is Christ. Uh, I've been reading um, a biography of John Newton, and some of you parents are especially good. I've got to call out to you, are getting your kiddos involved in certainly reading the Bible, but also there's some really great Christian biographies. And Newton writes in his autobiography, Out of the Depths, he writes this. And he, by the way, he was a bad, bad guy. I mean, we're all bad. But, I mean, he was a slave trader. He was, uh, he was having relations with others. He was actually, he'd gotten so bad that he himself had been sold as a slave <laughs> into Africa. And um, he was just, what's so bad, though, is he had a godly mother. From the time he was a youth, he decided to just walk away and was not interested. But the Lord saved him. He is the one who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. By the way, just as a side note, there was a, a, a group, I won't tell you who, uh, who wanted to utilize that song, but wanted to change the words. Does it have to say wretch? Is there anything else we can use? Wretch. It fits. Listen to what he says. I am not what I ought to be. This meaning as a believer. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, ladies and gentlemen, all this comes down to is who are you in Christ, in God? And just to speak very frankly this morning, and I hope you will think this as well, about yourself. I fail miserably many days as a husband. I'm a failure as a husband. I'm a failure as a father. I am a failure as a person. <laughs> I found that out this morning in particular. You know, it was the chili cook-off today. My wife spent all day working on chili yesterday. Um, I like refrigerators. They keep things cold. It was a little precarious in the refrigerator, and I'm a little forceful about many things. But one is ripping the door open of the refrigerator only to have chili fall on me, clothes, all into the refrigerator, floor, cabinets, dog. You know, it was just... <laughs> I was kidding about the dog. I put him up before I could do anything else. But it was bad. I was able to save half of a pot here and it didn't crash to the floor. My wife, sweet wife, comes in and, and she kind of laughs because... That's par for the course with me. She's at home making a little bit more right now. So if you talk with me afterwards, just, oh, I don't know, give it a little sniff and you'll know what our chili smells like, minus the sweat that uh, may come from me. Point of it is, I got a great wife, but I'm a failure in so many areas. And I would warn you, if you're a believer that thinks, you know, I do pretty much everything right and I don't apologize for anything, 
I don't know if you've understood the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus who died for me is not a failure. My heavenly father who chose me is not a failure. The Holy Spirit who resides in me is not a failure. My identity is in Christ, is in God. And I would go even further and say, in another sense, my identity is Christ. When I say that, I'm referring to Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. I love the way Charity Smith wrote about this. She was a 21-year-old Irish woman. She wrote a song called Before the Throne of God Above. She writes this, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is justified to look on him and pardon me. To look on him and pardon me. I always had a horrible fear as a kid, fear of failure. Man, it traveled with me for years. It traveled with me into the adult years. And it's interesting what I didn't realize that I was doing. I was placing it upon me and running from, I can never fail. I can't be a failure. I can't be a failure. And I'm encouraging you today in some strange sense, embrace your failures. Stop running from something that you know deep down you are. You need Christ. You need him every day. You need to stop trying to find your hope in you. But the psalmist says, Psalm 42, hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. That's what a believer does. So remember our questions. What's the primary reason God sent his son into the world? To save it. What is the requirement for a person to escape condemnation? Believe. Believe in him. Number three, what is the reason why people do not come to Christ? They love darkness. You see, the light of God shines on the world and it divides mankind in half. Those who hate the light flee from it because they love the darkness and they don't want their actions and lives exposed to the light. But what they fail to see, one day it will be exposed to the light, but it'll be too late by then. Ephesians 5.13 says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And yet others, by God's grace alone, run to the light and show to the watching world that any good deed they have ever done is done in God or in Christ. Carson, D.A. Carson writes that the light shining on all forces a distinction. Some of us perhaps have been trying to keep one foot in the world and one foot with Christ. And I'm telling you what, all that does is makes you do the splits and it ain't fun. So the question to ask yourself, does Nicodemus belong in verse 20 or verse 21? Quickly now. Verse 20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I think that's where Nicodemus is, or at least was. While verse 21 is where he needs to be. Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What are we kidding ourselves? Let's stop dealing with Nicodemus. Let's deal with you. Which verse is yours? Is it verse 20? Is it verse 21? 
Verse 21 are believers, Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Whereas verse 20 would be the unbeliever. And I ain't lying when I say I'm talking to some people here today that are unbelievers. In a room of this size, there's always going to be tares with the wheat. There will always be goats with the sheep. So unbeliever, does this passage move you? I pray the Holy Spirit moves you to faith and repentance by, his, by these words. If not, there's a time coming when you will be moved. Revelation 20.15 says, one day you will be thrown into the lake of fire. I pray the Spirit would move you today. Come to him. Trust in him. Turn from your sins and take those straight to the throne and say, Lord, I cannot save myself. Save me today. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. It enlightens our eyes. The spirit works in these things to make us more like the sun. I pray for us in here today that if we perhaps have been walking at a distance from the light, be that the word, be that the Lord, whatever it might be, Lord, help us to come running back to the throne, coming to you only in repentance and faith. And I pray for anybody in here who does not yet know Jesus as their Savior. Would you grant them that they would believe today? (laughs) Open up their heart to understand these things. And would you help the rest of us that we would glorify you, Father, for what you've done in us, for all those that are in Christ, who is God. In his name we pray it. Amen.